Martin Luther is a theological hero of sorts to me. And this passage that Jag just read is a passage that he famously dug at and mined until it was as if he hit three feet buried under a live electrical wire that, that jolted him, jolted his understanding of God, and began to alter the world. And it was this end of chapter 1, or the end of the reading today in verses 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul says of this message that he's not ashamed of, that he's got something to be proud about, something that's imminently shareable. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, that is, by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther said that he pounded away at these verses. He studied them. He wrestled with them. He prayed about them. He mulled them over and gnawed on them like a dog with a bone. And one day he said their meaning opened up for him. And when they did, it was as if I was reborn, he said, as if the very paradise of God had opened up to me. So since he had such an experience of that as he read Romans 1, it would be interesting to ponder for a minute why might that have been his experience. To do that, you have to go back to Luther walking across a field one day, having just enrolled in law school, having finished university at a very young age, a brilliant young man. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. He was in law school, a terrible thunderstorm came. He was in an open field. A tree that he hid under the tree apparently was struck by lightning in his terrified state. He cried out to his patron saint, Saint Anne. Saint Anne, save me, he cried in his duress. And I'll become a monk. Don't! He was saved. He quit law school. He became an Augustinian monk. He made a rash vow to God, as many people have done when they're in a jam. Come to my rescue and I'll pay you back big time. The problem, though, was as he decided, I'll become a real Christian, a dedicated Christian, a full-out, fully absorbed Christian. I'll become a monk is that he was a wreck, a nervous wreck. But it's not because he wasn't a good monk. In fact, he said if there had been an America's Got Talent for monks, he would have won. (laughs) Nobody fasted more. Nobody confessed more searchingly. Nobody was willing to put their body through the rigors and embrace a life of poverty and give themselves to prayer and involve themselves in the study of Scripture and to participate in the vows, the most rigorous vows of this Augustinian order. No one could excel him. He would have won Monk of the Year awards. 
the Oscar for best monk in Germany in 1515 is Martin Luther. Luther, we could say. But the problem was, being a good monk didn't really help his conscience any. And this is where it starts to tap in for us. In one place he said, if I could have known that I had the smile of God upon me, I would have done anything. I would have stood on my head to get the smile of God. If somebody had told me to do anything, get on top of the roof naked and stand on one foot, if that would make God happy with me, I would have done it. If God had said, give away everything and cut your hair funny, he's like, well, I already cut my hair funny, but I'll give it away everything. If he said, give up beer forever, I would have done it. Whatever he wanted me to do, I would have done it if only I could get his smile. His conscience accused him. His conscience wore him out. Like a cleaner with a dirty rug. It beat him. and Broke him. And he felt a kind of weight of despair. How do I get out from this? Of course, the answer for him was, I've got to do more. I've got to work harder. And we're in a moment where most people don't even consciously probably wonder whether God is pleased with them or not. That's not their existential crisis. But they're still plenty guilty. That's why they're so self-righteous. That's why there's so much anger. That's why there's so much criticism. That's why there's so much victimhood. Because people are really, really guilty. And whether they know it or not, what they want is the smile of God that would say, you belong to the one whose heart is the heart of the universe. You're okay. You matter. You are accepted. Most people, if they could be assured of that, they would do anything, stand even on their heads, But since he couldn't believe that, since he knew he had God's frown, he knew what kind of person he was, he knew that he was stuck on a treadmill of enough. Do you know that treadmill? Where you hear, well, you should confess your sins, so you confess, but you haven't confessed enough. You should have a quiet time. You should study your Bible. You should pray, but you never feel like you've really studied your Bible or prayed enough. You should be generous. You should give, but you never feel like you've really given enough. You should work as unto the Lord, but you don't. Work as unto the Lord. Enough. You should have family devotions. And you're like, well, forget that. But I know I should, and I don't do that enough. And everywhere you look, I should take care of the poor, and you help somebody, but it's not enough. We should be involved in missions, but, you, you know, we pray for missionaries and give some money to them. It's not enough. And you're on this treadmill where you don't ever really get anywhere. You just step after step, and it's still not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. Not enough. Any person who takes the scripture seriously will come to that conclusion if they don't know more about it. You see all the stuff the Bible requires of you, and you have to come to the conclusion that what God requires of his church is very robust, and there's no way we can do enough if doing a lot or enough is what's required. Pause. Do you know there's such a thing... As a thunder shirt dog anxiety garment. I learned this yesterday. You can buy yourself or your canine, your anxious canine, 
your OCD canine, an anxiety shirt so that if they spook easy, so if you live in an environment like we do where there's a constant discharging of firearms at nothing in particular, or if there's a, a random shooting off of fireworks or anytime there's a thunderstorm, loud noises in your dog is beside itself with nervous energy, terrified by the loud noise, quaking and fear. You can get them this thunder shirt. It's an anxiety garment. It's like skinny jeans for a dog. They put it on, it gets them tight, swaddled like a baby. The kind of stuff that would make you feel claustrophobic, you know, like a baby, if you swaddled, if you got swaddled up like that, you would not sleep soundly. You would start screaming that you were being suffocated. But babies like it. It's comforting. And apparently nervous dogs like these shirts that are way too tight. And a lot of people in America too. Why am I telling you this? Because Luther needed an anxiety shirt himself. He needed some kind of spiritual clothing to put on himself when he got out of sorts with nervousness before God, when his anxiety derailed him, when he was beside himself with this sense of not enough. He had tried to clothe himself with enough good, with enough sacrifice, with enough searching confession and prayer and generosity and caring for the poor. He had tried all that stuff, but none of it worked. He needed something that would hold him snug and make him secure. And he found it as he dug away at the meaning of Paul saying, this message, this good news, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed that is by faith from first to last. The righteous shall live by faith. He started thinking, huh, I've always thought that this righteousness that is revealed is the righteousness by which God requires us to be ship, ship shape. Careful. <laughs> this righteousness by which God requires us. That's what I said. You can go back and listen to the recording. By which God requires us to be sterling and perfect. His holiness that can admit no sin. It's the righteousness of God that it's required from us. It's something he wants from us. Well, that's what I always thought, he said. But then he started realizing as he mulled over Romans that what Paul was talking about was that the righteous God actually reveals his righteousness by handing over the very righteousness that he requires. An anxiety cloak for nervous sinners. We just said in Heidelberg, I assume you all said I wasn't here yet, that the way you're right before God is only by faith, and it is as if I have never sinned, but instead wear the righteousness of Christ. It's as if his perfection has totally been the garment that I put on. So that in God's eyes, it's as if I have been as completely obedient as Jesus Christ. As if I've loved God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength and loved my neighbor as myself. It's as if I've surrendered my body to the poor and as if I've done nothing but be devoted to God all my life. Even though we all know full well that none of us has done that. 
And that's why it's good news. Gospel, good news. That's why this announcement that the Messiah has been a sin bearer and was raised from the dead, and then by believing in him, you can get forgiveness of sins in his life reckoned as yours, clothed in his life as if it was your own life. That's why these guys thought it was such an amazing thing that they had to share that they couldn't keep silent about. Because they know that every single human, everyone without fail, wants so badly to be loved, wants so badly to be accepted. And most of us, if we have any hint of God in our natural state, are allergic. We think if he's keeping score, I lose. If he's grading, I fail. If he's inspecting, I don't pass the test. And the only way you can think that you pass the test is by reducing the standards in your own life and comparing yourself to other people that you think you're better than. Which might get you somewhere for a minute or two, but not if you have to stand before God. So if you find yourself not thinking about God, it's probably because you don't believe the good news. You probably think he's got something on you. We tend to avoid people who have something on us. We tend to draw near to people who receive us no matter what. And when Luther started to realize, wait, righteousness from me, he's giving righteousness to me. Faith is like empty hands, says Francis Schaeffer, by which I receive something of pure gift from God. That changes everything. You've heard these things before. But it's not always good news to us. If it's not good news to you, let me propose that you may have diseased hearing. And you might imagine if you went to a class, it's exam period for a lot of you. Some of you are in the middle of AP exams. Some of you are taking SATs and ACTs. Imagine you walked into an AP exam. You've done everything they told you to do. You've gotten a good night's sleep. You've eaten a breakfast. You've got two number two pencils nicely sharpened. You're ready and you're a nervous wreck. You're exhausted. You've been doing this so much. You hate everyone. The requirements are too many. You're in there for the SAT. You're in there for the ACT. It's a Saturday morning. It's a Saturday morning. Everybody else is doing something fun. You're taking tests. Your whole life's about to be evaluated by how you perform on this test. And the teacher says to you, kids, students, tell you what. There's been a special text message from the heavens. You've all got a five on the AP. You don't even have to take it. You're dismissed. You may leave. You'll get the college credit. You'll get the accolades, even though you didn't do anything. Now, the only appropriate response to that news is to stand on top of your desk and to beat your chest like a gorilla who has just won the Gorilla National Championship. (laughs) To hoot and to holler and to run down the hall and to go get yourself some ice cream and drive in a convertible. That is the only appropriate response to that news. However, most of us, if a teacher told us that, we'd say, isn't that the teacher's got a meth problem? He's having some troubles at home that are a little delusional. We can't trust that guy. Or you might kind of trust him and be like, I don't know. I better, I better take the test anyway just to be sure. I mean, I've studied. This is, can't be right. What are they ta- I worked so hard for this. They can't take away from me. I'm gonna, I want to do this. Or you take the test and like, ha- like three people go home happy 
They're like talking and laughing. Let's go binge watch on Netflix. And they're going to do something fun, and you're, you, you hate them. Stupid. What are they, like Obamacare? You just, you, just, you just hate them. You hate them because they're free and you're responsible. And it's only because you can't hear. Because your heart's jaundiced and it won't trust a gift. Because it's scary. What if he's wrong? That's why everybody's smart who's ever talked about faith has talked about growing in faith is always like a risk. So Martin Luther himself has said that faith is a living, daring confidence in the grace of God, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and happy in dealing with God and all his creatures, and it's the work of the Holy Ghost in you. So pray God to work faith in you, or else you will remain forever without faith, no matter what you do. John Calvin, you need to accept in your heart as well, says, Faith is a steady and certain knowledge of the divine benevolence toward us. And I know we don't talk like that. But the whole idea is as you take risks and start to do the math, the, the, the what-if statements, if God really loves me like he says, if I can't lose here, if I'm not condemned here, if every door I walk through named fear is going to meet Jesus on the other side, what would I do differently? Well, then do that. Act as if it's true. Take the risk to believe it. Leave the test room and say, I don't have to labor to get God to like me. He likes me. Now labor away with freedom. There's a huge difference for those who would believe it. And that's why Paul Tillich, who would not be ordainable in our denomination, could say that faith is the courage to accept acceptance. Because it all boils down to an act of courage. Do you believe that God would really look at you and say, I'll take you anyway? I know, I know, I'll take you anyway. Sometimes people, I'll give them a compliment. Your house looks so great. They go, oh, no, it's not, it's not. And I go, no, that's wrong. That's the wrong response. You give somebody a compliment, they go, no, no, you don't understand. Nope, wrong. I'm trying to get bolder. It is an inappropriate response when you get complimented to undo the compliment. You accept it. You don't try to Teflon coat and get it away from you. Let it hit you. Which is what this good news is meant to do. It's meant to hit you. And when it hits you, you can share it. Paul says, I want us to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. You can pray to God with an utter honesty because you know he knows everything about you and he won't turn his face away. That's why Paul says, I pray and give thanks to God through Jesus Christ all the time. He's my witness. I pray for you guys all the time. Nobody prays all the time unless they know that God really likes them and doesn't tire of them and they can say anything to him. Because you want that God involved in all the stuff you're doing. You even pray about stupid stuff. Stupid stuff. Will you have the courage? Will you ask God to work faith in you? 
so that you may receive with empty hands and live. Receive righteousness as a gift from God. And then live by faith in that God who gives everything that you need to live forever. Let's pray.